I think Aikens have established a new dress code for candle lighting. Those kids are so cute. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for the time that we can come together as a church family and celebrate our oneness together through the blood of Jesus Christ. More than just being um, a fellowship of, uh, of like-minded thinkers and believers, we are a family. We are drawn together because each one of us has been also brought before the throne of God by the agency of the blood of Jesus Christ, and we give you praise for that. We think about that as we look to the front of the room and see now the table of the Lord set in preparation for us sharing communion, communing with you, but also communing with one another. And we ask that you prepare our hearts and minds for um, the word that we are about to hear and the communion that we are about to share that Christ Jesus is glorified and our Father God is honored. And to this end, Holy Spirit, we invite you to inhabit the speaker and the hearer. Uh, let our thoughts be worthy of you and let our hearts be willing to change. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly before he was admitted to Oxford University in 1916 to study English literature, Jack Lewis had become a recent convert to atheism. He got in an argument with one of his friends about Christianity and mostly about the supernatural elements of Christianity, and uh, quite a few of his letters from that period remain um, showing that he was really a product of the spirit of the age, something that, he have some, something that there have been many allies uh, in years since. Jack was uh, chiding his friend for not accepting the recognized scientific um, arguments that uh, Christianity was much like every other religion. It's the, the, the miraculous stories about life and, and uh, the miraculous stories in the Bible were pretty much, he argued, on the same footing as other religions, the miraculous stories uh, like in Greek mythology, the, the stories about Adonis and Dionysus and Isis, Isis and, and Loki. And he said, all religion is an attempt by primitive man to cope with the terrors of the natural world, just so with Christianity. The story of the resurrection is a sublime retelling of ancient pagan myths about gods and goddesses who, by initiating the cycle of the seasons, represented the pattern of death and rebirth. Now, the irony of all this is that Jack was arguing with someone about ancient mythology, and he included Christianity as one of those ancient myths. But the guy he was arguing with was J.R.R. Tolkien, and, and <laughs> Jack had taken Tolkien on a walk along the river outside of Magdalen College where they were both working, and he was arguing about mythology. But the, the, the interesting thing is it's this argument about mythology and superstition and the supernatural that ultimately led to Jack's conversion. Uh, uh, Tolkien was at that time a, a professor at, uh, of Anglo-Saxon studies at Oxford. And he had been an expert studying for many years about ancient mythologies, um, epic mythologies, and had been writing his own epic mythology about Middle Earth while he was a soldier in France during World War I. Tolkien was insisting that, that, these, <coughs> that these mythologies, <coughs> excuse me, were not fantasy. They weren't, they, weren't, uh, uh, they weren't falsehoods, but rather 
what we find in these ancient mythologies is rather intimations of concrete spiritual reality. Tolkien said, Jack, when you meet a god sacrificing himself in a pagan story, you like it very much. You're mysteriously moved by it. And Jack agreed that's in fact the case, but tales of, of sacrifice and heroism stirred up with him this sense of, of longing. But then when he encountered them in the Gospels, he was rather repelled by it. The, Tolkien argued that these pagan stories are just splintered fragments of God trying to express himself through the various poets of time. And that um, Christianity and the story of the death and resurrection look very much like mythology. They look very much like myth. It works on your imagination the same way. But then Tolkien added, with one exception, Christianity is true. When Jack became a Christian, as a result of, of this beginning, uh, he, he, of course, was, was quite skeptical at first. And his life began to change as a consequence of coming to Christ, but not just in the way he was thinking and not just in his skepticism about Christianity and its mythology. He noticed that even his, his behavior was changing, the way he thought about other people. And Jack had been a, a wounded war veteran during World War I, and he had bragged that he, he had been in some tough times, but he never stooped so low as to pray. And yet, prayer had become a very major part of his, his life. Uh, one of his school friends later discovered that this Jack Lewis, who wrote the screw tape letters, was the same C.S. Lewis, who had been such a foul-mouthed skeptic um, in the time of his, his teen, teen years. But Lewis began to have a different life. He began to not only think differently, he began to live differently, and perhaps the most profound change was in the way he viewed other people, especially the people who tended to annoy him um, prior to being saved. But the same story really could be told about every Christian, that we begin this new life in Christ, that there's something new, a new nature that's put within us, and we begin to change according to our new nature. Christ has given us a new nature, and that new nature will express itself. We will become more like Christ through time. But really, we want to know the, the nuts and bolts of all of this. How does that new nature come into our life? How does it, how does it express itself in, in a different life? How do you know if you have this new life? Well, I'd like to invite you to turn with your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Romans 6, 5. Now, I realize it's been a couple of weeks since we were there. I'd like to thank Jacob for preaching last week. Uh, I, we had a family emergency, and Jacob volunteered to step up to the plate on very short notice, and I appreciate that. But if you can think back a couple weeks ago, I really intended for this to be part one and part two of the same message. So part one, where we were a couple weeks ago, was united in death, if you can remember that. So this is part two, united in life. Now, Paul has been declaring the, the wonder that, that uh, we had been uh, dead in our trespass and how grace has supplanted that, how we've been changed. Um, he argued in chapter 5, verse 20, that the law was not the means to gain eternal life, but rather... It is by grace that we obtain eternal life, and the law just simply shows us how desperately we need grace. And then we come to uh, chapter 6, verse 1. 
And Paul argues, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And it seems like a stupid argument to us now, but really it's quite a logical argument on twofold. First is, if we sin more and God forgives us more, aren't we receiving more of God's grace? So shouldn't we sin more so that we can receive more grace? On the other side of that same issue is, if God receives more glory by displaying His grace, aren't I helping God by sinning more? Because the more I sin, the more God has the opportunity to show His grace, the more God is glorified. So it seems like a logical argument. Paul answers it. Um, he says, well, first of all, he says, well, is it in this definitive declaration, may it never be. Heaven forbid. No possible way. And then he answers the question, secondly, with a question, and he says, how can that be? How can we, who have died to sin, still live in it? See, something wonderful has changed. A new nature has been placed in the sinner. The, the person who is who is saved by grace is now being transformed by grace. And it affects every aspect of our life. But what does he mean then at the beginning of chapter 6? I think we're still in verse 1 when he says, uh, we who died to sin. And then he identifies the group. Who is that? What group is he talking about when he says, we who died to sin? And then in verse 3 he said, it's those who are identified with the death of Christ, who have been baptized into Jesus Christ. Of course, we talked about baptism a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about baptism that we perform, that we see, is not salvific. It doesn't save us. It is rather a pageant, a play, a, a performance uh, that we can see of what really takes place in the heavenly where we are baptized in Christ Jesus. So we use these symbols of, of water, and we use these symbols that are before us today with communion to represent something which is the real thing. That's why we call these things signs. They point to the real thing, the real salvation which is in Christ Jesus, the real baptism that we have received into Christ's death. But now Paul begins to drive his point home as he rounds out this chapter. And in this passage that we're considering today, He's dealing not just with the believer's union with Christ through his death, but his union with Christ through his resurrection. So this is a real thing. This is not fanciful. The question before us is, how then, what happened that, to us that is represented in our federal head, Christ Jesus? Whatever it is, it, it really happened. Whatever really happened to Christ really happened to you. If Christ died, you really died representatively with Christ on the cross. And if that's true, then the next part is also true. If Christ was really resurrected, you also are really resurrected from the dead through your union with him. I remember when, uh, <clears throat> I think it's Galatians 2.20, when Paul writes, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Nevertheless, the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave his life for me. So he's identifying through this, this uh, resurrected Christ. Now, before us today, we say, well, that's all very fine in theory. It makes great theological discussion, but, but how does that really 
display itself in life? How does that, what does that look like in my life? And that's precisely what Paul is driving at in the passage before us today in Romans 6. How does this death and resurrection of Christ affect my daily walk? How does it affect the way I live my life? How does it affect the person of, of who I am? And so he explains, uh, well, two things. He says, uh, first of all, he explains that we, we walk in the newness of life, that there's something different about the way we live our life um, compared to where we were before Christ. That's chapter 6, verse 4. And now he goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 6, the other part of this is that I, I no longer have to live as a slave to sin. All my life, prior to salvation, I was enslaved to sin. Um, but since I have this union with Christ, that changes. Everything changes. The sin is no longer my master. I don't have to obey it. And how does this passage change the way you live your life today? Well, if you don't understand the implications of the passage we're going to look at, frankly, it's not going to change your life very much anyway. But if we embrace what Paul is teaching here, then we're probably going to agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones when he wrote, this sixth chapter has been to me, since I came to understand it, the most liberating chapter in my whole Christian experience. That's how important the text is before us today. So Paul is about to explain the believer's union with Christ, not only in his death that we talked about in the first four verses, but now he's going to talk about the union with Christ that we have through his resurrection. The Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Paul ends the, the fifth chapter of Romans um, talking about how the, the reign of grace has now taken over, has now displaced, has now removed from us the reign of sin and death. And now as he begins chapter 6, verse 4, he concludes, if we were buried with Christ through baptism, um, uh, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too may we live a new life. So he's about to start a new section, which is really the nuts and bolts about sanctification, how we live this resurrected life, this new abundant life. Now, verse 5 is really just stating his thesis that he's going to flesh out for us in the next several verses in verse 6 through 10. And so he's developing two parts to his thesis that the rest of this message and this passage follows out. The first is, if we have been united with him in his death, and that's the first part, and we've talked a lot about that already rather extensively, so we won't spend a lot of time there. And if that's true, then secondly, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. And that's the second part. That's the thrust of the message here today. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So this is the point at which Paul begins to talk about what the Christian life looks like, what the process of sanctification actually um, looks like. Then the point that he makes that he's going to repeat several times is, it looks like this, you are no longer a slave to the tyranny of sin. And the best way to explain this is to uh, 
focus on two phrases from this passage. The first phrase is old self that was crucified with Christ. And of course, the old self has to refer back to our identity with our federal head, Adam, what we look like prior to salvation, our identity with Adam. That old self, he says, has died. And that's why Paul said it was, it has been crucified. And then the second key phrase here is this body of sin. So, and he, and it's, it's so that this body of sin might be rendered powerless. So he's, he's dealing with our present inclinations to sin. And he's saying, you still might sin, but sin's power over you has been taken away. We, we have been delivered from the slavery of sin. In other words... Um, the reason that God removes us from our union with Adam and places us in this union with Jesus Christ is so that we have died to the past, not just simply renounced it, not just simply decided to go a different way. We have literally died to our past identity with Adam. And the point being that since we are now identified with Christ and no longer with Adam, since we are alive in Christ, we are no longer subject to the tyranny, to the slave master of sin. That doesn't mean you still don't have those same inclinations to sin. They still operate powerfully within us. Um, they're still there. The point is, even though the, the inclination of sin is still there, the power of sin, the dominating effect of sin is gone. Before we were slaves to sin, verse 6, having died, verse 7, we are now freed from sin. But will we still sin? Well, duh. We all know that we still sin. We still wrestle with those inclinations from the past. But something categorically has changed. Um, you may remember Augustine was talking about how uh, sin, man's relationship to sin in Adam before the fall, in Adam after the fall, in the Christian since he's been saved, and in glory, the fourth one being in glory once we are in heaven. And he said, in Adam, in Adam's case, prior to the fall, he had not sinned, but he was able to sin. Passe peccare. It, it was, he was able to sin, although he had not sinned. After the fall, and you, before your salvation, um, you, you are not able to not sin. Non passe, non peccare. In other words, you couldn't help yourself from sinning because sin dominated you. Sin ruled over you. You were a slave to that sin. Now, the state of believers since our union with Christ is that we are able now to not sin. So we call that passe non peccare. You are able to not sin. You don't have to sin. You will sin because you want to, but you are not compelled to sin that you are free from its tyranny. And then, of course, we look forward to the time when we leave this, this sin-filled body and we stand before Christ, finally sanctified in that glorified state, and we are said that we are not able then to sin any longer, that non passe peccare, we are not able to sin any. We will not fall into sin ever again. Verse 8. <coughs> Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
Now, curiously, Paul is here speaking about our present resurrection, not the future resurrection. So if you isolate the words here, we will also live with him. You might perceive that he's talking about our future resurrection. By the way, our union with Christ does guarantee our future literal resurrection. It's just that that's not what he's talking about in the text before his. There is a future resurrection, but that's not what these verses are about. Now, we've already seen in the case of Christ that prior to his resurrection, Christ had a relationship to sin, though he had not sinned, because he was going to be the sin bearer, and he had a relationship to death because he was going to die. He was a human being who was going to die. After the resurrection, that relationship is permanently severed. He's no longer subject to death. He's no longer in a relationship to sin. He's already paid the price of sin. And Paul is trying to say that that is the sphere of our relationship to sin now, that, that because Christ is resurrected, because you identify with Christ through his resurrection, your relationship to sin has been severed. Where he was, um, we, we are now. The, 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 that's kind of what Paul was talking about in Philippians 3.10, I think. I've been crucified with Christ. No, that's not the right one. Uh, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection to be conformed to his uh, suffering, the fellowship of suffering to be conformed into his death. What's Paul talking about? When he's talking about he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, he's talking about how to live a victorious Christian life now, how to be victorious over sin now. That's the subject. Paul's basically saying, I don't want to sin. I want to understand what it's like to live the resurrection life. Verse 11 so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God, uh, to God in Christ Jesus. Now, I realize, you know, we're crawling through Romans, and it's been months. You know, there's just, he's only written a couple chapters, a few paragraphs. But, you know, it was September when we were in chapter 4 that we learned about, and I made a very strong point, not strong enough, by the way, when I talked about this particular word that Paul uses many times in chapter 4, and the word is to reckon, to count, to consider. That's the word he's using here again. It's a really important word. It's the word logizomai in, in Greek, and it's related to the word logos, which you're familiar with, which means word or deed or uh, fact. So logizomai in Greek has two uh, applicable meanings. The first is a commercial dealing. It's a bookkeeping word. Um, it has to do with reckoning or, or counting up something that is. The, there, we have English words uh, that, that uh, preserve a bit of it, like log and logistics and logarithm. A, a log is a numerical accounting of a ship or an airplane's progress. Um, logistics have, is a military term having to do with the reckoning of numbers and movements of trips troops and supplies, and then you have logarithm, which is an, um, an exponent that's, has, to which a base number has been, uh, base number to raise it to its, I'm going to need some help on this, Tom, <laughs> an exponent to which a base number is raised to produce a given number. Is that good enough? Okay. 
Um, the the logizomai is also used in philosophy, and it has to do with objective, non-emotional reasoning. And so we have words, again, like logic and logical, which express that. Now, the common thing in all of these applications of the word logizomai has to do with, it deals with the way things really are. Not how you wish they were, not how you want to make them become. It's, it's, it has nothing to do wish, with wishful thinking. It's, it's not an activity that produces something to happen. It's just simply an acknowledgement of something that is already true, that has already happened. Now that helps us to understand where, what Paul is getting at in Romans 6.11 because he's already used this term logizomai many times, most especially in September when we were talking about chapter 4. It was used 14 times in chapter 4 alone. And he's going he's to use this word several more times. Um, and he's employing it to show that our, our sins have been reckoned counted to, accredited to Christ, and punished there, and his righteousness has been counted to, reckoned to, accounted, added to us. And, and we say this is a factual thing that has taken place. It's a bookkeeping term, meaning we understand the facts. Um, our sins are reckoned to Christ on the cross his righteousness is reckoned to us. This, after all, is exactly what we celebrate at the table before us today. The accounting, the reckoning of our sins to Christ, the reckoning of Christ's righteousness to us. Now, these two reckonings are actually the two sides of justification. Um, they're not just imaginary transactions. Jesus really did die for our sins. He really did suffer for our transgressions. Similarly, his righteousness really has been credited, transferred, reckoned to our accounts. God accounts us righteous. He reckons us righteous through Jesus Christ. Now, that's what Paul is trying to get at here. He's not telling, you, telling us that there's actions you need to take. He's saying there's something that has already happened, and you need to consider it, count it, reckon it. You need to just see that this has already taken place. Reckon that what God said is true. That is, in essence, the, the whole meaning of the word faith, right? That you believe that what God said is true. And he's telling us this is true, that, that at, at the cross our sins were reckoned to Christ and his righteousness was reckoned to us. And there's specifically two things here that Paul tells us that we need to count on, to reckon. The first is you need to reckon with, count on the fact that you are dead to sin. Now that doesn't mean obviously that we're immune to sin's temptation or its seduction. It doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. It means that sin does not own us. We're not forced to sin. And that's the reality that, that Paul has, has explicitly stated many times. Look at back up to uh, 6.2. We, we died to sin. Verse 3 and 4. We were baptized into his death, buried with him through his baptism into death. Uh, verse 5. We have been united with him in his death. 
Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Um, verse 7, again, he makes the point that we had died to Christ. See, all those statements are factual. They're not theoretical. These, these really happen. These things you are to consider as quite real have taken place. And on the basis of that truth, he says, you need to count yourselves as dead to sin. And the way Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, he says, consider and keep constantly before you this truth about yourself. In other words, you need to start thinking of yourselves in terms of this reality, that you are no longer in the realm of your identity with Adam. You have a new identity through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing that Paul tells us that we are to reckon or count on is that we are alive in Christ Jesus. The first one is that we are dead. We have, we have literally died. Count that on. Put that on your account book. Secondly, he says, you are now alive to, Christ, to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, verse 5 is paralleled here. Um, if we've been united with him in his death, we shall certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Again, we're not talking about the resurrection which is yet to come when Christ returns and we are physically raised from the dead. He's talking about resurrection life right now, that we are being made alive, verse 11, and through Christ Jesus. Um, John Stott explains it this way. This reckoning is not make-believe. It's not screwing up our faith in, to believe what we do not believe. We're not to pretend that our old nature has died. We know perfectly well it's not. Instead, we are to realize and remember that our former self did die with Christ, thus putting an end to its career. We are considered that, in fact, we are namely dead to sin and alive to God, like Christ. Once we grasp this, that our old life has ended with the score settled, the debt paid, the law satisfied, we shall want to have nothing more to do with it. Um, let me jump down to verse 12. Um, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And notice the first thing that he's teaching us about has to do with this process, this life, of sanctification. This is the first place in Romans where he's introducing to us the active process of sanctification. And, and to understand that, we have to talk about several principles of sanctification and to make these terms possible. And the first principle about sanctification is just this. Sin is not dead. It's not dead in Christians. And even the most mature and pious Christians they're struggling with sin, and, and they always will until we stand before Christ finally finished with this process. So there's no point for Paul to tell us to offer our bodies, uh, not to offer the our parts of our bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather to offer them to God as instruments of righteousness. There'd be no point in telling us to do that unless we had a tendency toward that direction anyway, right? It's a moot point other than that. So we have to realize that sin is still something that even the best Christians continue to wrestle with. Now this is interesting too because there are some Christians in the uh, 
pious movement who believe in, in perfectionism, that somehow, because now we're Christians, we no longer sin, that there is no longer sin in our life. And they go to all kinds of gymnastics to explain to us how sin is not in them or somehow that sin can be eradicated from them. I know, I know Christians like this. I bet you do too. They believe they no longer sin, that, that there's no sin in them. There's a couple problems with that. And first of all is that everything in Scripture says that's not true. 1 John 1.8 um, if we say we have, not, we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The second part that makes that rather complicated is it must be awfully discouraging if you think you don't sin and you wrestle with sin. <laughs> How do you deal with the disconnect between what you want to be true and what you see is, is somehow very obvious that Sin has not been eradicated. How do, how do you deal with the fact that you're still fighting with sin in your life? Now, the second principle um, that Paul is telling us here about sanctification, the second principle is that sin can reign or dominate in your bodies. It, it can't dominate to the sense where it destroys you as a new person because since you have this new nature within you, that new nature, that nature of Christ, will eventually win. And as you sin, you will hate it. You will despise yourself for sinning. You will abhor sin. You will yearn for righteousness. And ultimately, you will obtain righteousness, though it might be through a great and unnecessary struggle. I can't become a slave to sin, but I can certainly become to a slave to the cravings of my body, which sin produces. And you know that in people that become slaves to uh, the cravings of their body. Again, if that was not so, it would be pointless for Paul to tell us, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. The truth is, we sin, and we sin often. And that's why Paul is urging us to yield our bodies to righteousness and no longer yield our bodies to sin. You don't need to any longer. We have an alternative. And that, of course, leads us to the third truth here is, as Christians, we don't have to offer our bodies to slave to sins, but he gives us a positive alternative. When he says, now, offer the parts of your bodies to God, as instruments of righteousness. And of course, that is the thrust of this passage and much of where he's going from here. Paul is urging us on to, to righteousness. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Rather, offer them to God as instruments of righteousness. Do something positive. And I'll come back to this in a minute, but let's close up with verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now notice here, this is a promise. This is, uh, this is written in the indicative, not the imperative. Earlier, back in verse 12, when he says, don't let sin reign, that's written in the imperative. This is something you need to do. Here, it's written in the indicative. This is something that is true, and you need to reckon with it. Sin's dominion is gone. It's history. You cannot be brought back into the absolute bondage 
of sin as you once were. You have a new nature in Christ. You may wrestle with sin, but the new nature is going to eventually win. R.C. Sproul wrote, when Paul says you're not under law, some people take this as a license to sin as if they were no longer under any obligation to keep the law of God. They believe we have passed from law to grace. The law was Moses, but grace is Jesus. So we're free from the law. I don't think that's what Paul means here, nor do I think Paul is referring simply to the law of Moses. Earlier in Romans 5, he pointed out that the law was in the world even before Sinai. God reveals his law in nature and in the conscience of human beings. You can't just restrict law to the laws of Moses. From the beginning of our sinfulness, we have been under the dreadful burden of the law because the law condemns us. The law reveals our disobedience, and the law cannot possibly be the means by which we will be saved because as debtors to the law, we could never repay our debt. I think he means that we are no longer under the law in the sense of being underneath the awesome, weighty burden of the law. Paul says we are no longer in the condition of being crushed under the weight of the law, no longer oppressed by its burden of guilt and judgment. We are now under grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. The truth of which Paul was continually reminding Christians is that we have been freed from the burden of law. Why then would we ever want to go back? Now that we have been justified by faith alone, are we going to try to return to justifying ourselves through the works? No. We move from grace to grace, from faith to faith. Grace did not end at our justification. Grace is ever-present in the process and progress. We are as much sanctified by grace as we are justified by grace. Back to verse 13. Don't present your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That is, don't keep offering the parts of your body to sin. Your hands, your feet, your tongue, your mind, your, your eyes. Don't offer them to sin as tools of unrighteousness. And, and then he tells us to be on guard against doing this and take the positive action of presenting ourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from death to life. Present your members to God as tools of, of righteousness. And here we have described for us a once-for-all action that every one of us must take. It's not just simply a matter of I agree with what the Bible says, I acknowledge that there is a God, I acknowledge that there's Jesus, and he is who he is. There's something more to that. All of us must at some time, and I trust that all of you have in the past, come to the point where you've said, Lord God, I present to you all that I am without any reservation, all of who I am, my, my mind, my tongue, my eyes, my hands, my feet, I surrender them to you. Take them all, that they might be instruments of righteousness. If you haven't done that, I offer you no hope or guarantee that you're truly saved. If you have done that, you need to be reminded, you made that promise one time. Lord God, take all of me without any reservation, and use them for your glory and your purposes. God, here I am, alive from the dead. I died in Christ. I've been resurrected with Christ. Praise your name. Here then is my body, my hands, my feet, my eyes, my mouth. Take them all. 
that I could be instruments of righteousness and not of sin. Jack Lewis was once very much like Paul, an enemy of the cross, bitter, sarcastic, cynical, critical of Christ, and yet by God's grace, by the presence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by the, the power of the resurrected Christ, and Jack Lewis becomes C.S. Lewis, the defender of the faith, the great explainer of the Bible. I'd like to ask the men if you'll come forward now, and uh, Emily, if you'll lead us in the song, and let's prepare our hearts for communion. Our Father and our God, we want to thank you again as we one more, once more celebrate this communion, not 200 single spider webs connected to heaven with a communion element on the bottom, but this family of faith, one family, it represents the bride of Christ. And we share this communion with one another. And as we share this bread and this wine, we say, I share with you, my brother and my sister, with life. I share your hardship. I rejoice with your celebrations because we are one family. And that I forgive you of the transgressions against me because I have been forgiven so much in Jesus' name. As we take this communion, as we recognize that this wine represents your blood, the blood which satisfies God's wrath against me, and as we share in this bread that represents the life of Christ lived in perfect righteousness and my guilt counted to reckoned to Christ and his righteousness reckoned to me. Take these common elements, God, and now sanctify them for a holy use as we remember now the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.
we have been discussing now for months as we began this book of Romans about God's wrath, about man's just reception of God's wrath, how we have been alienated, strangers, the object of God's anger. If you've only come here for the last few months, you'd be wondering if that's what God is, if he's angry and wrathful and, and harsh. It's, it's here at this communion table that we come to this meeting point between the wrath of God and the love of God. And when we go back to the love of God, everybody wants to think immediately of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's where love and wrath meet at the same point. God loved so much that he spent his wrath, all of it, against his son, Jesus. And so we're about, like I said, at this pivot point in the book of Romans. But let me read from you from Ephesians um, chapter 2. Again, you're going to find a lot of the elements that we've talked about for the last few months of our alienation and God's wrath. But you'll see, too, the balance when we, he introduces the motive here of God's love. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcised by that which is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant promise of God, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. That's what it's all about, isn't it? And it's easy for us, if you've been here for, the, I don't know, since I started Romans last summer, it's easy just to think that God is mean and angry and wrathful and forget that it's all about his love. We are presented today with the elements that represent the life of Christ, and I have referred to you many times why we take these elements and what they mean. That a very real transaction has taken place. Our guilt has been transferred to the cross, and God was fully satisfied 
that it was all paid for. How do we know that? How do we know that God says it's satisfied? he's satisfied? Because he was resurrected from the dead. The resurrection doesn't add anything to your salvation. It just proves that God's satisfied. It shows you that as he was resurrected, that's our hope too. Not only was God satisfied, his wrath completely spent, but the other side of this that his righteousness is credited to us. How righteous does God consider you? Are you morally neutral? You've been forgiven of your sins and you get to go to heaven because you lack moral negativity. No, we are as righteous as Christ. How valuable in God's eyes was the righteousness of Christ? That's the value that he places on your righteousness too. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. Then on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat this. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look back at the cross. We look forward to his return. Beyond that, we look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb, and you will be seated there because of the blood of Jesus, which was shed for you. We are determined, Father God, as we share in his communion. We are determined to forgive one another. We are determined to love one another. We are determined to present our lives before you as instruments of righteousness for your glory. Not because we are earning salvation, but because we have been given it. It's already a fact. To that end, may our lives please you. May we be an expression eternally of your grace poured out on unworthy creatures like us. All this to the glory of your name. Amen.